This is the second episode of the series with an anonymous woman named Catherine. The series with Catherine started in episode 86. In this episode, we're going to hear about some of her literary science fiction reads. So what have you read that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so... um I read a fair amount. Last, like I, yearly, I read between thirty-five and fifty books. Wow! So okay, it's a fair amount, um, and it ranges in what comes up. So I still read classic literature. I like to read fiction. I like to read fantasy. I like to read romance. I like to read mysteries. So the fantasy is probably more what I read now, but I read a fair amount of science fiction in twenty ten to twenty fifteen. Okay. So when I look back. It was that my taking in of science fiction at that point really had to do with connecting with the people I was connected to at that point. So we would all read the same like science fiction work and then chat. So I was in a relationship with someone who played Battletech, and so we would read the Battletech novels, which also helped me to understand Battletech. It's a, I have to say, and I say this with all compassion, the, the mechanics of Battletech are long gone from my mind, and I'm quite happy to have that space back. <laughs> like, was not really my cup of tea, but it was interesting to learn about for a time. Yeah. But at that time, I read a good amount of Star Wars fiction and a fair amount of books that were suggested by that group of friends that I was with. And so among them was Dan Simmons' um, Hyperion uh, series, I guess. And uh, of a duet called Ilium, and then um, I think it's Olympium, which were uh, a retelling of the Iliad, but like in space with robots. Nice. So doing a quick perusal today, I'm not impressed by Mr. Simmons generally, (laughs) (laughs) but those series have stuck with me um, because of the way they utilized classical literature and the touchstones of that literature in the way that they were written, and yet were these sort of fantastic worlds built fairly well and interesting stories i mean compelling enough that i I think i made it through them in two years or so so with all the other books i was reading those four made their way through fairly quickly so dan simmons is an american science fiction and horror writer He's author of the Hyperion Cantos, the Ilium Olympus Cycles, among other works which span science fiction, horror, and fantasy genres, sometimes even intermingling them together within the same novel. Simmons has won the World Fantasy Award and also writes mysteries and thrillers, some of which feature the continuing character Joe Kurtz. Oh, okay. And did you read those? Let's see, we're talking post-college? Yes, I would have been in my 30s. Oh, okay. Because, you know, people read different books at different milestones of their life. Mm-hmm. And many people read science fiction up to college, and then something happens in college where we get busy and we don't go back and, uh, yeah. And come back a little later. Yeah, maybe. It all depends on the person and different kind of story. So. Oh, what else? I now read, a, like I said, a fair about more fantasy. So um, things like M.K. Jameson's Broken Earth trilogy has been on my radar. 
N.K. Jemison or Nora K. Jemison, spelled J-E-M-I-S-I-N. She is an American science fiction and fantasy writer who also works as a counseling psychologist. Her fiction explores a variety of themes, including cultural conflict and oppression. She has won several awards for her work. Her Broken Earth series has made her the only author to have won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in three consecutive years. There's a couple of retellings of classic stories that I'm not sure I would call fantasy, but they are certainly fantastical. And so one, two that I read this year, one was Circe, which was a retelling of the uh, story of Odysseus from the point of view of one of the witches on an island that he was stuck on for a few years. Right. And then the other by the same author was a retelling of the story of Achilles uh, from the point of view of, um, oh, now his name is gone. The lover of Achilles. Okay. Um, pers- pers- it's a dude. Uh, sorry. Achilles <laughs> and a dude. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's an oh, alternative. Oh, goodness. What is it? Is this Dan Simmons again? Or is no, this, this is a woman named uh, uh, Madeline Miller, uh, Patroclus. So it's a story told from the point of view of Patroclus. Madeline Miller spent 10 years writing Song of Achilles while she worked as a Latin and Greek teacher. Is a part of the Greek mythology? It is. Patroclus? Yes. So Patroclus was the favorite of Achilles' band. And uh, there has always been this sort of rumor slash story alongside the Achilles story about the queerness of Achilles and uh, Patroclus being his lover. And this story sort of reclaims that and says, yes, that was true. And let's let's say it was true and normalized at the time. Mm. What would that have looked like mm-hmm. had the retelling of the Iliad included it the whole way? Oh, wow. So, um, and then it sort of tries to explain at the end why it didn't come through. What did, so in both of these last two cases, there is a Greek mythology literary element. Is mm-hmm. that what attracts you, or is there something else that brings you to so this? So uh, I studied Latin and Greek uh, in high school and college, and so part of the way in which my education in Latin and Greek was done was also through the mythology of, of both cultures, Roman and Greek. And so those stories are very familiar, and so the opportunity to hear them from a different perspective or to hear them in a new way is intriguing to me. In the same way that in my 20s, there was an author who used to retell um, traditional fairy tales in a new way, which is how we get Wicked, like the uh, musical love, Wicked. Yeah, I think Gregory it's Gregory. Choir, yeah, yes. Big fan. Yes. Gregory McGuire is author of Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister, and several other novels for adults and children. And Wicked was turned into a Broadway show. This musical is Broadway's fifth longest running show, surpassing Les Miserables. And at its peak, nine companies ran simultaneously around the world. How cool is that? I really love those stories. The Ugly Stepsister was one of those. There's a continuation of Wicked with the story of one of their sons. Right. Right. I want to say there's a Pinocchio one. There is. Yeah. So it was a whole... 
genre yeah <laughs> on its own right and then there's a, a series of novels called the jasper uh the Thursday Next novels, written by Jasper Ford. Oh. And those are about a woman whose job it is is to go into books and make sure that the characters stay in the books they are supposed to. So if you can imagine a library, the oh. idea being that characters could travel along the shelves and show up in each other's books. Oh. And her job is to make sure they get back to the stories they how, belong to. How clever. Jasper Ford is a British author who lives in Wales. Ford's books contain a profusion of literary allusions, wordplay, tightly scripted plots, and playfulness with conventions of traditional genres. His work usually contains elements of metafiction, parody, and fantasy. A slipstream storytelling. Yeah, yeah. so I would call those sort of science fiction. I mean, they, they have this whole undercurrent of how this all works they yeah. do a world building on like how would people get from book to book and there's usually some sort of science or math involved whether uh. or not it's real and uh i think those types of stories i have found enjoyable over time in part because you already know the story and so it's much more about right. what were other characters thinking or what was someone else's point of view on, on a beloved character but also i've I, like jasper ford he's a good writer like mm-hmm. they're they're an enjoyable the air affair is one of those books the thursday thursday next i think is the first one they were just really enjoyable reads. And so those were from my 20s. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think the the place where I've ended up with fantasy and sci-fi is looking for authors who are not um, the majority and their voices in that realm. So I'm looking for authors of color, female authors, or queer authors writing science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And so that both uh, has broadened out my experience of science fiction and fantasy in that there are new... The characters in the book are are of a different feel. They often speak differently than I'm used to in sci-fi and fantasy, and they are not automatically white. And it also means that it's a smaller amount of books because there are fewer people who are not white writing those books. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it feels manageable. Sure, that's true. It's a filter, yeah. (laughs) That has been really eye-opening. I mean, particularly N.K. Jemisin... Almost all of the characters in her book are brown or black. And I feel as though when I'm reading them, the white characters are almost albino. They're not traditional Caucasian. And so it changes what the dynamics are between the characters because the the issues of white and not white being at odds mm. are removed from the book. Like, that's not the issue at hand, okay. right? Yet there are still differences in color. There's still differences in race. There's ways in which people manage what is the same and what is not. How do we define ourselves? And I think those conversations are interesting from the point of view of someone who didn't grow up white. Oh, I see. So I think that's where I'm at with fantasy and sci-fi right now, is Hang looking on. for minority voices. Let me go back to that. So you, th- you said <laughs> you think those, are, those issues are interesting to someone who didn't grow up white. Tell me more about that. So I, I think that you still see humans trying to categorize themselves and humans trying to define what's us and what's them. But it's not as simple as we are white and they are not. Oh, like, uh-huh. we are all varying shades of all varying colors, and yet we are navigating us and them at the same time. And so it takes out the traditional power structure 
and says, like, we still will end up trying to categorize ourselves, right? Mm. Even if it's not on race. Mm. But let's talk about then what are we categorizing ourselves about? Sometimes it's on ability. Um. Sometimes it's on access to certain environmental factors. And sort of exploring, yes, there's competition between cultures. Mm. But that competition doesn't have to be based on a very basic Richard. visual cue. Okay, there we go. Yeah, I think that sounds like a lot like what Star Trek has done. However, Star Trek does not honestly show conflict between the crew on their backgrounds too much. So if I think about that for a while, I guess there's a, t- a bit. I mean, Spock, Vulcan, he had a lot of... Okay, so yeah, Spock, Spock had a lot of conflicts based on his uh, his belief systems. And uh, um, the Betazoa, Diana Troy, and uh, had some marked differences uh, as well. Yeah, and then I guess the whole thing with Data and Seven was about being characters who are so far out of uh, the usual bands of differences that it was like a wholly unique, they were kind of alien within the, the ship's crew. So I guess Star Trek kind of made it about aliens and humans in general, cause, uh, or the Federation as a culture, because it wasn't quite just humans, it was humans and other people. Mm-hmm. I think that when I when I think of Star Trek, I think there were characters of differing backgrounds and that was clear but i was a white character watching a white captain operate a primarily white ship mm-hmm. and i think when i'm reading this literature that i'm seeking out i am a white reader who is not in the majority in the book mm-hmm. and oh. so i'm beginning to see like i'm being offered the opportunity to not be the majority presence and to read through like there is still like the removal of race as the main divider and frankly sometimes the removal of gender as the main divider there's still conflict Mm -hmm. right but let's talk about what the conflict is actually about and if we're not looking at only as like race gender and access as being the main conflict points then we need to resolve these other conflicts like Mm -hmm. and then when i broaden when i come out of the book i'm like oh there's like so many spaces where we could be having these conversations Mm -hmm. without uh with both recognizing privilege and recognizing the impact that our identity has on our experience but also recognizing that humans are humans and we need to address some of the underlying factors of things like access Mm. regardless of their identity factors right we just people need fresh water that should just be a thing it shouldn't matter where you come from you should be having access to fresh water so Uh. i think that it, it 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 takes my privilege and makes me both look at it and say let's listen to someone else talk about their experience mm. from a very different point of view. Whereas Star Trek, my experience is centralized. Mm. And so I can I can learn about the other things, right? We can explore the other cultures, but the ship is safe because it's very much my culture. And that's what you mean when you say Star Trek is centralized? Yeah, my, my, my privilege, uh, my identity is to me centralized in Star Trek. I got it, yeah. Like... Yeah, yeah. Cisco on Deep Space Nine was, I think, the only non-white. A little, a little edgier because he was in command. Right. And, uh, yeah. Right, right, right. And uh, honestly, that Deep Space Nine went further because the, the casino owner, um, what was his name? The, uh, Quark. Quark, and he's... What, Ferengi. Ferengi, yes. It's so, like a test. So that was, a, that was like, yes. <laughs> well, that was like another uh, aspect of where main... So, so you had uh, Cisco being the uh, uh, black commander, mm-hmm. and then you had this other alien race, which usually was in conflict with the humans, become mm-hmm. a fairly big part of that show as well so he was kind of like in a way a disempowered or not well-liked minority that became a bigger part of the show in deep space nine uh and and he had a son as well and Mm -hmm. uh i guess he raised it as a single his Mm -hmm. son as a single father because i don't recall ever being a mother in the picture there was no mother there was an uncle 
So yeah. his brother was around. I think it also Quark was... Quark navigated some very complicated dynamics. So, like, he had to... Because of the relationship between the Ferengi and the Federation, mm. he had to find ways to be diplomatic with the Federation while maintaining his credibility with his customers who are often not Federation people. Oh. And so I think a lot of his storylines, they often set him up to be like doing something the Federation wouldn't like. And by the end of the show or the end of that episode, he had worked to the benefit of the Federation, but in a way the Federation wasn't expecting. Mm. And so I think, I think he was set up to be sort of a rascally figure, but one that was a part of the, community on the spaceship. Oh, I see. Ultimately, kind of compliant with the values of the... Well, not about the values of the Federation, but the results... Ultimately, allegiant to the spaceship and its community, whether or not he felt a whole lot about the Federation, I think. And often, at least narratively, often enough making decisions that were outside of what you would want, Mm. that he was a wild card. Yeah. I think that's kind of how we built him up. I think in D&D terms, we would call him uh, unlawful neutral, so he would uh, not necessarily be lawful, but he'd be kind of neutral. He's ultimately not a bad guy, but it's hard to say if he's a good guy. A generation ship that travels for a millennia to a new world only to find it already occupied. A political science fiction novelette that Harry Turtledove says will raise your hackles. The novelette by Lancer Kind is called Memories Victims. It's available on Amazon. You can tap on the link in the show notes. Next episode, we hear more from Catherine. And then we played a um, game called Numerna, which was like a newer RPG where um, you basically explored what seemed to be alien lands, but I think turned out basically to be Earth 20,000 years from now. And you could find artifacts of old civilizations and use them towards whatever your game leader was taking you to. Um, I did not watch Discovery, and I might at some point take in Picard. It's just not... We'll watch Picard. I brought it with me. Oh. So I have two episodes. It's only... That's the... That's all there is, is, right? Yeah. Um, I have to say, my intake of serialized television is a lot different Mm. in the streaming age. Yeah. So it just doesn't... It doesn't ever come on my radar to watch it. Mick and I... Yeah? ...just watched Lost in Space. Which one? The new TV show on, or TV show, but the new streaming show streaming. on Netflix. That is really a nice show. And I, we, we watched the last, the first season, and we just finished the second season. And as much as I have enjoyed it, yeah, I would rather watch Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> which now, which Battlestar? The Galactica? newer one. You, so you've seen the newer one. Yes, all right. I watched all, all of those uh, in my mid twenties. Okay. And they, it was over, so I was watching it on Netflix DVDs. Oh, okay. But um, yes, I watched hmm. all four seasons. And I have to say, Lost in Space scratches that itch, but the whole time we watched the second season, I was like, we should just watch Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) 